one, two, three. Is that better? Okay. The acoustics in here are always a little wacko anyway. But, um, but anyway, just uh, I, I, th I think it's sort of fun to know that in addition to their senior administrative roles within the academy, uh, these guys actually have some really cool interests that drove their careers coming up to this point. Mike Bame, uh, uh, plant pathologist, and uh, with uh, particular uh, administrative expertise in strategic planning is really a passion for him. But anyway, brings a, a very interesting uh, area of science. Deli Davies, a recognized expert in pediatric infectious diseases, as well as uh, being a leader in community health, which which we do know. This is a place where. Uh, we've engaged with Delhi a good bit um, uh, from the Rural Futures Institute standpoint. Mike Bame, you all know, is the Harlan Vice Chancellor for the Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources and the Vice President for Ag and Natural Resources at the system level. Delhi is uh, Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs and Dean of Graduate Studies, correct? Um, B.J. Reed, who's been around nearly forever, um, and but for every good reason, uh, he is the, the Senior Vice Chancellor at UNO for Academic and Student Affairs. Uh, BJ's background, uh, a Master's in Political Science, uh, which uh, is sort of fun, and a PhD in Public Administration, and that and the Public Administration side was a was heavy part of your academic development and advancement uh, in his longstanding roles at UNO. Charlie Bisek, who I learned something more interesting about, I believe every time I I, I look it up. Uh, Charlie, uh, also Senior Vice Chancellor for Academic and Student Affairs at the University of Nebraska Kearney, but uh, is a range scientist. I mean, and he's serious. He shows up at range science meetings and is really interested in what they have to say, yet. Uh, so anyway, you have four gentlemen here who obviously provide very important guidance to our four major campuses, our four campuses of the University of Nebraska, who have all been friends of the Rural Futures Institute uh, from the outset. Uh, I mean, Mike is new to the game, but uh, certainly a key player with us. So uh, you really have folks here who make a difference in the institution, and we are really inviting you and providing the opportunity today for you to mix it up with them, hear from them on some of the key questions that are before us, uh, but also to get into some of those barriers that you wrestle with within the academy uh, that keep you from having uh, the kind of impact that you envision as part of the Rural Futures Institute. So I'm going to ask our fellows if they would introduce themselves, and starting with Jeff, who you are, kind of your, who you represent, your field, and we'll just go around real quickly so they know.
he's hung out with radicals. I mean, he's hung out with absolute radicals. Yeah, so. Close enough. Jess, yeah, please. Yes, Michelle. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Well, listen. So as you see, we have a we have a pretty diverse group, and um, this this afternoon is not going to be a, a series of lengthy speeches. We're going to have have some conversations. But I thought we might start, quite honestly, with giving each of you a chance for a minute to uh, essentially say a word or two about the complexities of rural as you see from your institutional perspectives and um, a bit of how you see RFI's role there, if you will, because we have a little different relationship on every one of your campuses. And uh, if you just say a word or two uh, about that perspective as we go. Charlie, would you want to start? Yeah. I'll either set the tone or be atonal, Chuck. It depends on how, how, how one looks at this. Um, you know my expectations. <laughs> you know, it seems to me that um, uh, complexity is, is the, the operative word when I think about uh, uh, rural successes and rural challenges. And tell a little story. It'll be brief, Chuck. But um, I was thinking about this driving from Kearney, and I was thinking about a fellow named J.W. Forrester. Some of you probably know his name. He was a native of uh, the Anselmo, Nebraska area, born in 1918, died just last year at 98 in 2016. He was born on a farm uh, without electricity, a very bright young man, became very interested in um, uh, power, and so he rigged a battery system that allowed for um, electrical operation or service on the farm. That led after many years to his um, essentially becoming the father of or the uh, founder of uh, system dynamics. And I think it's really about systems that allows us entrees to thinking about contending with the complexities of, um, of the world around us, notably rural. And I would say that it's about the connections that occur and the flows that exist within and out of um, rural communities, the corridors and patches that connect those rural communities where the patches are may be cornfields and soybean fields, the corridors may be I-80, they may be gravel roads, they may be canals, they be, may be natural kinds of um, 
kinds of conduits or connectors, but I think it's all about thinking in terms of systems as uh, a connecting way of viewing the world, thinking about sources and sinks, regulators on flows in and out of communities, regulators of flows in and out of uh, cities, and in and out of farms. So, so my watchword is systems and system dynamics to begin. spent the last two weeks in Alaska, you make me think of uh, conversations that uh, I had with a uh, cultural interpreter uh, from the Athabascans who, when we asked, so how does your society survive for 12,000 years in, in such a, an absolutely uncompromising environment? And her response was, we believe in the connectedness of all things. We, we recognize, we are trained from the time we're very small children that our actions have other implications, and so we try to think constantly about those connections. Um, and I, so anyway, I'm glad for you to bring that up. I think it's uh, absolutely appropriate to our little region. Yeah, he's just trying to show us up. Uh, <coughs> I'm in, among all these scientists, so it's for no purpose. But um, uh, yeah, complexity is, is the is the watchword. I grew up in northwestern Kansas. challenges haven't haven't gone away so I think part of part of the the issue around complexity is is how do we how do we manage strategically uh, especially in terms of higher education uh, add value to the needs of, of communities in rural areas and that that can what do universities do pretty well uh, they obviously educate uh, students and they educate Also, do research, uh, particularly my interest is translation research and that focus. And we're, we're also can be pretty good at piloting things, testing the waters, uh, looking at proof of concepts, those sort of things. And there are a lot of things we're not really good at. Uh, and the goal for higher education is to stay away from things that we're not particularly good at uh, and try to focus on where we can improve and add value. So. So from, from the point of view of the Med Center, we've always viewed ourselves as a 500-mile-wide campus. We have uh, branches throughout the state in, uh, of course, Scotts Bluff, Norfolk, Canning, Lincoln. And we have our, our students rotate throughout the state in every, pretty much every county. And um, we view our role at the Med Center to really help with economic development throughout the state of Nebraska. Um, and I think from the point of view of the RFI, we see our role 
um, as being an enabler and a susta enabling sustainability of those communities by allowing students to first of all go to school as close to their home as possible and more importantly to give them the maximum to give those communities the maximum opportunity of having those students go back as professionals one day and help to stir economic development we actually have a lot of data on the impact of our hop i don't know how many of you we can talk about that at some point uh, on rural, rural nebraska um, you know several programs k-hop similarly we've had strong long-lasting partnerships with carney uh, that has led to significant economic development i would say uh, with carney but i think the, the whole you know we talk about you know potential for looking at systems but i think leadership is very important and i also think that ability to re reinvigorate and rethink what we consider a community so rather than thinking of the community as the, the the town the small town that you grew up in maybe you start to think about a community of neighborhoods because the reality is that your comp your competitor is not you know the small town that's 50 miles away from you your competitor is a city or a small town by the way if you go to china and you meet somebody they'll say i'm from a small town of a million people <laughs> that's how they view small towns so so in terms of how we we got to really rethink how we consider small towns and if we truly want to compete it's gonna be about you know working together partnerships and by the way this is true no matter what it's true for us at the med center it's true for anybody i think communities will have to learn to think of them their survival as integrated as as being joint as opposed to thinking that they need to sort of compete with each other um, and i have my friend here from uh, the ag college in order is to look at how we use extension the whole ag extension and maybe rethink how we can integrate some health into those extension centers throughout the state. And I know that's been done at some other states very, very effectively. And use that as a, another mechanism of economic development. So I'll hand over to Mike. Wow, uh, I first wanna say I want Delhi's socks and Charlie's tie. They, they look pretty snazzy together, fellas. Sorry, it doesn't match Delhi's socks there, <laughs> PJ. Um, a couple of a couple of thoughts here, uh, a little bit disjointed. Um, one, there are a lot of Y chromosomes sitting here in front of you, and I, every time I, I see this, I think uh, for me this is a connection back to the inclusive excellence and to diversity and inclusion. Uh, I think um, we're the products of a, a beautiful, wonderful system here in Nebraska. I guess if Dondi Plowman were able to join us today, we would have 20% of the senior academic leadership team show gender diversity. So I think uh, kudos to you, Chuck, and to the team for having a, a more gender balanced um, uh, group of fellows than what's represented here. I think that is inherently a complexity, uh, an element of the ecosystem or the integrated system of rural communities. And I think um, that's thought number one. Uh, thought number two, I think uh, it's pulling in my head I'm liberal arts trained, even though I'm a biologist, and that is the ability to hold two diametrically opposed views in your, in your noggin at the same time. And uh, I think uh, while we think about rural America, the Great Plains, um, I was attracted, no question about it. I grew up in Cleveland, so I don't know how I became an ag person, but um, go tribe. The, uh, 
situation is that the the values of the Great Plains, the values of Nebraska, are beautiful. It's a beautiful set of values, and it's uh, it's attractive. But I do think we have to really look at our our cultural fabric, our societies, what we value, whose voices are heard, whose voices aren't heard. And in a state like Nebraska, I guess a third kind of a statement I would make is I've been so impressed. I just started here literally nine months ago, didn't know much about Nebraska. I've never been in a state where people introduce themselves as a fifth or sixth generation Nebraskan, and that is awesome. And uh, But I've also been engaged with our four tribal nations, and uh, I've had people tell me I was a Nebraskan before there was a Nebraska. Wow, right? And even if you go back those folks migrated 10,000 years ago over the Bering Strait. So this is a place of migration. It's a place where community like Scott's Bluff engages uh, Germans from Russia or Mexicans or Stromberg is the sweet capital, so be it of Nebraska to the Czech capital to the new migration that we see in Lincoln and in uh, other parts of the state. Some of our communities really struggle with this. Others are embracing this. And so I have no doubt that that's connected to growing Nebraska and the vitality of our communities, both rural and urban. And then kind of the last thought is this notion of um, a number of issues, whether it's leadership. I think Delhi mentioned it. Leadership is critical to the vitality of our communities. We have to think about access to safe and nutritious food, so food deserts kind of a concept. 245 public uh, school districts uh, in the state, so access to quality education that leads to the University of Nebraska or Community College or Peru or Shadron State. Uh, we have to think about logistics, rail heads, uh, highways, broadband access. That's really pretty critical. Um, and so you, you pull, and then of course healthcare, which we kind of talked about healthcare and access to healthcare. Those are at least five elements that are critical to the vitality of our communities. And then just to leave you with a provocative thought, I was in Japan with the governor's trade mission a couple weeks ago, and I learned two facts about, um, about uh, uh, Japan and the U.S., I guess. So if you add up the population of Japan and the United States of America, we will stay constant over the next 50 years. The two together near me, the two together will stay constant. And that's because we'll increase about 30 million people and Japan is scheduled to decrease their population by a third. They'll go from 127 million people to 88 million, give or take. And so when you think about Japan and you think about their demographics, the rest of the world will increase in that two billion. So. We really need to be thinking about, and there are some parallels, I think, between Nebraska and Japan, to be honest with you, and uh, we need to figure that out. And I'll end by just saying thank you so much for investing time in the Rural Futures Institute, bringing that intellectual capacity and perspective. We, couldn't, uh, we can't make Nebraska a better place without your help. Thank you. Well, listen, uh, this is about your opportunity to mix it up with these guys. So. Uh, you have some questions that uh, were raised through conversations with you. These guys have seen those four major questions. You're not limited to those, but who'd like to who'd like to raise a question uh, to get the conversation started? And I will pick on you because I've been listening to you all morning. If 
if uh, there's not a volunteer, and I know that Todd Barty would love to volunteer. Uh, Todd, you raised a, you raised a very important issue as just as we were uh, wrapping up a, by the way, really dynamic morning, fellas, of input from these folks. But a, really a, a, a key issue within the academy as to how folks like you and your colleagues uh, do this work and be credited appropriately, encouraged appropriately. Talk a little bit about that, because I, I, I know some of these guys have uh, some interest in it, so. Of the work. 
And I think it all begins with, we talked about leadership earlier. I think, you know, it's important when you're going to a new organization, you're not, you're tenured faculty, truly understand the culture of that organization and understand how they view what you're doing. Um, I think there's, there's increasing and growing recognition of community engagement as, as totally credible scholarly work. So the, we're at the cutting edge right now, so there's still a lot more work to be done, a lot more P&T committees that need to be convinced about this. But I would say that the way to, to convince them is by starting to really create a very careful portfolio. So, you know, I work at an institution where traditionally it's very, very difficult to get, you know, what, what are we supposed to do at academia? We're supposed to teach, right? But trying to get promoted using your teaching portfolio has traditionally been very difficult at the med center, as it is in many major universities. You know, you get promoted primarily when you bring in all the big dollars and you, you, know, you publish papers. But we've been slowly, it's like a big ocean liner. You know, you gotta do a lot of work to move it, you know, one nautical mile. Um, but, you know, we've been slowly convincing the different colleges and the different PNT committees to understand the importance of teaching and a valuable teaching, uh, a credible teaching portfolio as an important contribution, contributor towards promotion. So I agree with BJ that the key thing is to try and see how you can integrate what you're doing and think of the work that you're doing in the community when you're working with different agencies and different groups in different uh, towns. How can, the, how can you tell your story of what you're doing? And part of, part of telling that story is calling the work, writing it up, writing up what you're doing, and then making sure that everybody understands that that's a legitimate um, product. So if you think about every single type of program that we have, we have humanities. You know, you, you, we have, uh, for example, music. You get promoted maybe by producing CDs, right? In some, in some specialties, it's more important to publish books than to publish papers. In others, it's the papers that are more important than the books. And I think that what we have to figure out from community engagement is what are the real tangible, tangible products that will be accepted as credible proof of scholarly work that you can showcase. And I think that I see it as an opportunity as well, Todd, you know, in terms of maybe if, maybe if we can do this through RFI and come up with what we believe are cogent, concrete products that could be evidence that you've actually made an impact on a community on, at some level, then, then it's a matter of now going back and educating PNT communities that they should accept that. For example, I know Michigan State for several years has con considered community engagement, scholarly work as an important aspect of our PNT. Now that took time, but that's because they had leadership that bought into it early with High, high Fitzgerald. And then you need to really just have, I think we have the leadership here now that if we decided that this is where we wanted to go, I'm not saying it's gonna happen tomorrow because even after you quote unquote try to do it, the, the committees are still gonna, there's still gonna be some reticence there. But at least it's the beginning. And I think if we can figure out what those products are, then I, we can start to educate the PNT committees that this is credible scholarly work. Perfect challenge to this group, Todd. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, <clears throat> gosh, I, I agree with everything BJ said. And is it Todd or Tom? Sorry, Todd, what rank are you? Full? Yeah, so I'm going to pick on you for a little bit. We're all in this together, so it's a team sport. There's no other 
no more powerful position in the academy than a full professor in a unit because you, you have made it through and you get a choice to influence your colleagues about stretching in a way that the P&T committee and your culture, you're a culture shaper, a cultural broker. So I would empower you, not that you need my empowerment, but I would say, please, I'm counting on you to actually stretch the system. So I would just say that. I think um, to BJ's point, I come out of agriculture, out of a liberal arts training and then into ag, and then I went to a liberal arts college as a professor and then back to Ohio State on the faculty. I would say in agriculture, we've grown up on a diet of three-way, two-way. We're used to talking in that way. So my entire career, I had a three-way appointment teaching research and extension. And it was all embodied right in this one person. And I was lucky enough to be in a community of senior colleagues that valued and looked at each of us distinctly as individuals with individual splits. My department was really careful about excellence in this area looks like this. And the PT documents followed that. And, um, but I wor I've worked with lots of disciplines that um, 105 disciplines at Ohio State, 54 here at UNL. There's a normal distribution curve on where people and where communities are on that spectrum. So that's where administration has a role to also be partners with the faculty to really put incentives and the disincentives in, in, out on the table. I mean, one way we, we have is to say no. We can override decisions, P&T decisions, so we can make statements that way. We ultimately control resources, so recharging faculty lines and um, behavior that's working in the spirit of collaboration and moving things forward, we can incentivize. Behaviors that go counter to that, we have some tools. Now, we might not last very long as administrators, and if you're worried about that, then that could be an issue for them. But if you're not, and you're interested in driving cultural change and brokering positive change for the impact and the success of communities, and then it's a pretty it's a pretty important key toolbox. That's what I would add. As, as I'm listening, I picked up on a, a multiple themes in each of my three colleagues, but Mike mentions empowerment, Todd, in terms of that uh, full professor status. Uh, Deli mentions integration. Um, BJ, you mentioned systems again. And, and it seems to me that the RFI, there's never been a great... that into the structure. So we have built, it's college decisions and faculty decisions, but I think four of our six colleges now have scholarship of engagement built into their RPT guidelines. So now you don't have to hide from it and, and justify it. It now counts as part of your reappointment, promotion, and tenure criteria. We institutionalize it. And, I, and that takes a lot of work. Michigan State was our role model for that. Uh, because they did research and found that 80% of their students were doing engaged research. They just never called it that, and they never recognized it. So, so I think 
and if you can institutionalize it, then then it's then it's built into the system. I was just gonna, if you're gonna go talk to your chairs, you should probably come up with some solutions. In other words, I would think it would probably be much more powerful for you to get together with a group of your peers, think about what constitutes real outcomes that are, that are acceptable for community-engaged research or community-engaged scholarly work, I guess, if you want to put it that way. So when you go to them, you're not just going and saying, I think, or this is what I would like, but you can say, this, this is what the literature shows, this is what's been done elsewhere, this is what I believe you know, constitutes things that we should consider when we're looking at portfolio of faculty members who are doing this kind of work. So you, you, you sort of come in a bit more engaged and prepared and able to change. I want to just give one quick anecdote. There's a guy by the name of William Mosler. Some of you might have heard that name. He's considered the father of modern medicine. When this guy started off at McGill University, medicine looked totally different than it did when he finished his career. So, you know, before he started, everybody, all the teaching in medicine was all done by people going to lectures. He's the first one to introduce the notion of rounds. Um, and then he's the first one to introduce residency training programs and observation. The whole thing was observation, observation, observation. But it was not something that he woke up and everybody said, yay, Bill, let's go. I mean, it was, it was an uphill battle. But today it's recognized as having changed the whole system and we're all following what he does. I guess I'm just saying there's an opportunity for you to be a pioneer if you do it within the context of working with your peers. I think one of the interesting things about and the power of this group, I've got Don Mackey, uh, Jeff stepped out. You've got folks who have worked closely with the academy but are outside in communities. When we start talking about measures, measuring impacts on communities, I think, and, and Milan with Arlen Center, uh, we have folks that do that. And uh, Don, you might weigh in here. got a bit of a thought about it. I think, the rev I think you really nailed a very critical point here. I think state funding for these things are going to continue to stagnate and decline. I think research is, is going to struggle uh, under injured NSF. Um, there's a lot of the money that went into translation research and technology that's been just 
the revenue model has to shift in a couple of ways. One is contract disclosure, um, where we, we do, in the auto business, we do a lot of that. There's not a ton of money, but if, if you can begin to work with counties and cities, uh, even state agencies, uh, to begin to do some contract uh, research for them, translational research, and then, and then think about how you can get that into a publishable environment, I think that's one. The other that we found is now foundations, uh, that we're increasingly seeing foundations care about a number of the issues that we care about, uh, and that they're willing to both do donor-based support and contract, not just not necessarily donor, we're going to give you the money, go have a good time, but we, we'd love to have you do research for us on a particular area of focus of populations that you're interested in serving. So will it replace <laughs> the decline? I, I certainly can't guarantee that, but I do think alternative revenue sources like that have to be explored and aggressively uh, sought out, because if we don't, uh, I think you're right, you're going to have a real struggle within the academy to get this done. I don't think we have any choice. I think that's exactly what we have to do. We have to, we have to do a better job of communicating the value of the kinds of engagement and research we do uh, with that with that group. I, th I think we don't tell our story very well. I don't think we necessarily evaluate and assess the impact of what our work is. Uh, everybody thinks, well, if you don't move from X to Y, it's a failure. If you don't move from X to Z going the other direction, it's a success. So, so I, th I think there, we, we have a responsibility to go out and, and proselytize around why that's a huge ROI investment, why that's a value added to the state. You know, the state thinks about this, but they don't necessarily fund it. And so uh, we have to figure out a way to get that message through to our legislators, to the governor, to county boards, to whoever it might be, and to the donors who exist. This is what Jeff spends his life doing. So, so I, I really think it is the alternative that we have to explore because if we don't, I think we're missing a huge opportunity and the, and the impact may be not what we think. This doesn't add very much other than to underscore what you've just suggested as essential and what uh, BJ is, uh, has underscored. There is a film that came out last year, a producer was a fellow named Bill Banowski called Starving the Beast. Some of you may know it. Uh, it. It really dates across my entire career, 35 years or so in higher education and the inevitable and continuous decline in, in state aid and support. And it's compelling. So if you haven't seen it or are interested, uh, Bill Banowski, Starving the Beast, says this is what we have to do. You know, I, I think we have... Um, the enviable land-grant university system that other parts of the world are trying to, right? And yet it's, uh, you don't know what you have until it's gone. And so it, 
it pains me to watch the marginalization of this system across the, the world that is trying to be emulated, and yet we don't know what we have until it gets lost. I absolutely think we have to think about where our funding sources come from. I think we have to challenge the status quo. I wake up every day wondering who are the faculty and who are the students of tomorrow. I think we have to be, um, Stanford's D school took a look at, you know, who are the students of tomorrow? And why do we think that when you're 18 to 22 years old, you come to the place called the university and you get everything you need for the next 80 years of your life? When we know that the people who graduate today will have four to six careers and they'll pivot left and right. And oh, by the way, 40 to 50% of those jobs aren't even, we don't even know what they are. So how do we flip the model a little bit? And I think at least my part of the organization, we've done a pretty good job being respectful of non-PhD, non-terminal degree folks who have actually worked in the field for 20, 30 years and they're called professors of practice. Unlike other institutions I've been at where the hierarchical pecking order of the academy really plays out hard, it seems more wholesome here and we have to really think about who are the faculty and who are the students and we need to, I think we need to turn the model, models on their heads. I think we ought to, for example, just throw out, I think we ought to offer educational futures. When a student graduates from the University of Nebraska, point blank, we say to them, we value your success and given the changes that are gonna happen in your lifetime, we know you'll need to come back. So an inverse student loan, we will lock you in, Rachel, to today's credit. You can pay for it over the next 10 to 15 years in small increments. And whenever you need to come back virtually, whether it's my campus, this campus, that campus, you have access. That's a different way of funding higher education. Other models, I think affinity partnerships, Costco is a great example. Came to the state, net $1.2 billion positive impact so how can we leverage, how can we really leverage? We have 455,000 living alumni, faculty, students, and staff amongst our institutions. You know, for a company like Costco, maybe they don't care about another half a million customers, but those half a million customers touch three other people's lives. That's 1.5 to 2 million people that all of a sudden are potential customers, potential clients. You gotta think about that. We have to forge partnerships between governments and universities and industry in ways that we've not done this. How do we get somebody to, to actually hire our students at the end of year three because they've taken them as a test ride? They pay, the company, a multinational company pays for year four. And oh, by the way, year four might not be get done in four years. Year four might be, you're gonna go work for the company and in Shanghai and then you're going to pivot back to UNK and you're going to finish your degree but it's on the company's dime. These strategic partnerships really need to be explored so it's a completely different paradigm than what we're used to thinking about and those are those are the cutting edge types of things I think we need to explore.
Kim, thanks. I was going to let Deli answer the question, <laughs> but he gave me the mic. Yeah, I think, um, Kim, I'm just going to be candid here. I think Ronnie, when he took over as chancellor, absolutely had the vision of trying to bring some of the strategic thinking and planning that he was able to impart during his time at IANR to the university level and through his partnership with Hank and the other chancellors to the system level. And while I still think that is a possibility, the external context has changed dramatically. And there are some strong external forces that are pushing even on the best, best in, of intentions. So to be honest with you, a strategic planning exercise has been consumed by a $49 million permanent cut across our institutions. And it is tearing at the fabric, has the potential to tear at the fabric. Our, our trick in this is how do you still bring these meaningful conversations to the forefront in a way that doesn't erode, vaporize the momentum that we've got. And I think, Todd, you said this a little bit, part of what we have to rethink here a little bit, I mean, we're an academy. If the academy isn't free to do the objective, creative works and discovery, and that we don't do some of what academies have done for thousands of years, we're missing the boat. At the same time, I think this is the struggle. There are short-term, mid-term, and long-term impacts and outcomes. We're very impatient. The turnstile on administrators, or some of us, is too short. Politicians, the, the bright, shiny object that we're all attracted to. I mean, this is re these are real tensions. Somehow we have to find a system that allows us to settle into what are those long-term impacts and those long-term, how do we measure the work that you're doing? How do we truly measure the work, Kim, that you've done in Scott's Bluff or in Gearing? How do we measure those true impacts that have to be durable from administration to administration or from leader to leader or from faculty generation to faculty generation? I think this is where I personally, UNL and beyond, and that's where I need help. I need the likes of Jeff and others in the room that can really help us identify impacts. And then we need to do enough of the short-term stuff to keep people off our cases, off our backs, while we do the good work that we all need to know. And I'll, I'll go one step further, that at U, the University of Nebraska writ large, I absolutely think because of our nimbleness, our agility, the 1.25 degrees of freedom in Nebraska, we know what's important, back to the values. We haven't lost our way. There are a number of other Big Ten schools, they're chasing a bright, shiny object. In fact, we just saw Wall Street Journal put out top 500 universities again, another ranking yesterday. UNL didn't fare very well in there. If we start paying attention to that, we're missing the boat. And I think this, this takes longer than five years, longer than 10 in some cases. And we have to be steady enough to really, as a community, top down, bottom up, sideways, what is important and identify those measures, those lagging and leading indicators of success. And then we need to tell the story over and over and over and over using all different media. And I don't know how to do that except confident that together we'll figure out some ways. I just want to add that I think it's, it goes back to how we tell a story. We as an organization, the whole system, 
the economic impact of Nebraska, uh, Nebraska University to the state of Nebraska is, is I think, $3.9 is the number. We get $500 million from the state every year. And I think part of the message we need to be able to tell is, where else can you go and guarantee every year that if you give a dollar, you're going to get $6 back? But that's all good on paper, but it's only when you start to talk about community engagement that that can actually translate into something tangible for those communities. So when we go to Scotts Bluff, we go to Kearney, you know, we go to uh, Norfolk, we can actually say, you know, because of our hop or whatever program, you now have all these people who are working and living here. That's the story we can tell. And that can be converted into a direct, tangible economic impact. Why is that important? It becomes crucial because those become our advocates. They should be our advocates. People can tell our story to the legislature when they're deciding they're going to cut another $49 million. Because if, if they don't recognize that this can actually come back to hurt, the programs that we're establishing, all the good work you're doing, are going to be negatively impacted. If these cuts continue, these cuts that are allowing a stable source of revenue to be even given back to us, then I think, you know, we're going to lose out. So I guess one of my comments is that we really strongly need your advocacy, recognizing the economic impact, because at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, the dollar, the survivability of the university. And we've got to be able to make people recognize that when you cut, you know, that $6 return is going to go down proportionately. And if we can tell our story well, and, you know, it's one thing for us to say in Omaha, well, that's great. If you're raising money, that's helping. The, the people may think, well, that $6 return is in Omaha. But it's the work that you're doing that will demonstrate that it's not just Omaha. It's all the small communities across the state of Nebraska that are benefiting from the economic impact of having the Nebraska system. <clears throat> Follow up on both Mike and, and Delhi a little bit. Kim, um, 25 plus years ago, I came to the UNK campus from another institution as a tenured full professor, uh, ran and was elected and served on a, an NRD board. Rachel knows that whatever forum I'm in, I say something about NRDs. I can't help it. Um, but the natural resources district system in the state of Nebraska is like no other uh, governing complex in terms of resources. Um, the 23 resource districts that cover our state follow natural ecological lines, watersheds in ways that other states um, envy, other countries envy. So my, my service on that board at that time was looked on in this way. Charlie, that's nice, but make sure that you continue that, that uh, rhythm of uh, scholarly activity, research, and publication. Today, I would tell you that uh, if someone were indeed on the faculty to run for that kind of elected position where they make a, tr a translational uh, contribution and difference, so to speak, it would be looked at differently. And I think that trying to just underscore the importance of looking in breadth, top, down, sideways, bottom, however we do it, that's crucial. I want to take us in a, a little bit different direction. We have some really interesting players here. I'm, uh, I want to talk about service learning just a little bit, which has been an area where I think RFI has provided some leadership, some measurable impact in communities. And Rochelle and Mylan uh, were both part of the original team that envisioned uh, our rural service ship program. And uh, you might say a word or two about that and its real world impacts. And then I'd like to tie uh, Eric, I'd like for you to say a word or two 
our conversation earlier about starting to involve the students that we have in the serviceship program in some research, connecting them with faculty, having a research component related there too that I think might take it to another level. And I, this is something that can touch all of our campuses. So anyway, uh, anybody want to comment along that line? I, I think it's an important part of what we're doing. So, uh, Eric, talk just a little bit about your thought, because this is something we've been kicking around as we think about growing this program with student fellows.
So response from you big guys. Uh, we think this is a fun idea, um, and I will tell you that it was part of this conversation this morning also led to in 40 years, students may not be coming to Lincoln, Omaha, Kearney uh, for classes anymore. Uh, it may be a completely different learning model, uh, and it also led to discussions about <clears throat> these service learning students being in a community. There, a community might become a learning center, and have students that cycle through over a, a long period of time, a year at a time. So anyway, so just be interested This in is thoughts. something we're very comfortable with at the Med Center, something we've done for years. I mean, this is actually what we do. Um, you know, we have students who start off at, you know, in, in Omaha, Kearney, elsewhere, but then we expect them to go throughout the state of Nebraska. Um, you know, they go there, they, they, they work in hospitals, they work in clinics, they, they participate in care. They're learning, but they're also providing a service. Actually, that's the interesting thing about health students is that they're providing a service while at the same time they're learning. And a big part of why we have such a big success in sending a lot of our students back to rural communities, many of them fall in love with a community they've never seen before. As you, I think somebody said, it might be somebody from urban, I think you were the one who said that, it might be the first time somebody from Omaha has ever stepped into, um, you know, Scotts Bluff or Norfolk or any of the smaller communities, Hastings in between. Um, so we, we are totally, we've not only seen the benefit of this, we believe in it. And as I said, because we believe that the whole state, you know, is our campus, for us it's an integral part of what we've done and what we'll, we'll continue to do. Uh, so for us, it's really not something that is a radical idea. It's something that we want to continue to grow We've, we've embraced this for a long time, and we have several people who um, are living in the fact, we just had a conversation earlier, I was talking to Charlie about somebody who is a faculty member now at Kearney, who is from Kearney, I believe, came to the, to the med center. And I was just saying, I'd love to have that person come back and talk about how, you know, that whole experience of leaving Kearney, coming to get their training at the med center, and then going back there. So that's really, our model, and I think we totally get it and buy into it. Just to follow up on that, um, with regard to um, sort of the breadth of service learning, we have a health science education complex on the University of Nebraska Kearney campus. It opened two years ago. Uh, it houses nursing, which we've long had at UNK, but graduate now along with undergraduate, and half a dozen areas in the College of Allied Health um, programs. Uh, PT, PA, MLS, sonography, radiography, medical nutrition education. In the uh, summer of 2013, after we'd gotten a stake from the legislature and spoken to the Appropriations Committee, uh, three of Delhi's deans and I made a nine-city, three-day tour. And those cities were uh, Lexington, KRVN Radio, and the hospital. Uh, North Platte, Rotary, and the hospital. Scotts Bluff, uh, alumni, and the hospital. And then back uh, through uh, Sydney, Scotts, uh, Skidney, Sydney, Ogallala, Broken Bow. You can tell it's seared in my memory. Yeah. Uh, Hastings, Kearney, and Grant. But the point was that at every place along the way, we got a pledge and a promise that yes, we will assist and participate with regard to internships and preceptorships and those requirements for the completion of the professional degree, but also recognizing those folks recognizing the benefits to the hospital, but also to the greater community. And to me, that's an indication of that uh, uh, value and that outreach in the service learning. So. 
might think, well, gee, Omaha doesn't have any angle here. Um, and 87% of our students come from the metro area. Uh, but I will tell you that uh, our service learning uh, programs are incredible. We have over 200 courses a semester that are service learning courses across every discipline uh, in the field. We have service days that are have 1,000 students uh, involved. Uh, our next one will be in October during fall break. Uh, and then we've created in the last two years uh, basically a co-curricular uh, service learning. They don't get course credit for it. And the number of students flocking to that uh, across four or five different uh, areas of focus is amazing. Well, it helps to have staffing to support those efforts. But let me throw out an idea, which um, I think, because you mentioned the fact that, you know, a lot of the technology is going to allow us to deliver uh, our coursework across the state uh, in a much more efficient way. Uh, what about, and we've been working on this, we have an undergraduate uh, bachelor's degree in multidisciplinary studies that's online, uh, and we have relationships most of the community colleges in the state, starting with Scotts Bluff and Western Community College all the way over to actually uh, Iowa. Uh, community college could be a key partner in this effort. Uh, they're in the communities. Uh, they, are, they are the ones that are working uh, with students, but in a way that, that a four-year institution can, can partner with and benefit from even if those students don't then transfer into a four-year institution. I think we ought to look at partnership state colleges, clearly are that as well. Uh, and we need to figure out a higher education approach to service learning and engagement of our students across the state uh, that, that could effectively harness that to mutual benefit of the communities they serve, but to the benefit of the students themselves. We just need to think conceptually, maybe outside that box a little bit, about how we might do that. And, and I think we've got some models that have worked extremely well. I'm sure the other campuses have as well. But how are we thinking about this? And, and RFI could be the key linchpin to think through how we make that happen. I, I think the uh, service learning program at RFI, uh, in fact, just this morning I had my all-hands meeting with the, all of the faculty and staff at IANR about 1,700 people. I highlighted uh, RFI's program this morning. So Chuck and Connie, yes, ma yes, ma'am, yes, sir. I think it's great. A uh, couple of thoughts. Keep doing more of it. Thank you for your vision that you had. I think it's uh, amazing. I was up in Wheeler and Boone counties yesterday, and little towns like Genoa and Barnett and uh, Albion, and I talked a lot with the uh, Board of Supervisors and co County Commissioners. They have already identified our students from multiple campuses represented here to pull back into their communities. They already have projects. They have, they've already started thinking about reintegrating their, their citizens who have gone off to the university and engaged. I think uh, I say this to Connie and Chuck, they get tired of it because RFI formally reports into me as the vice president of the system. And so um, they come in with a very focused agenda and leave confused because of me. But uh, I will say, I think we need to do an, a better job of integrating across the systems that we have. 
I, I said this, uh, Paul Engler. I had a chance to visit and have coffee with Paul this morning, and Paul Engler gave uh, $20 million to kick off the Engler Entrepreneurship Program. I will just say, when, I, when, when you're listening, talk about humble. When I first came to the university 60 years ago, I'm like, holy smokes, right? What do I know? But I'm sitting there listening to Paul and to Tom Field, and, and I know that Paul and Chuck and Tom are all friends, but I keep saying it over and over. This isn't a race. It's not us versus them. It's us and them. And we have to do a better job of horizontally integrating with these entrepreneurial engagement programs. We are not talking to each other as much as we need to. And um, we're too small, resources are extremely tight, and we need to just kind of roll up and look at the win-wins and figure out how we do this, how we do this more effectively. And uh, leverage every ounce, every iota of contact and context that we can. And that would be my plea to the group. And, and I think then the other side, this is where politics gets in the way. In Ohio, again, I'm just gonna use that so I don't have to pick on Nebraska. We had 56 brick and mortar campuses that were public institutions and we had another 50 private institutions. We had 103 universities or colleges in Ohio that you could choose. Six times the population than of Nebraska. But my point here is, you know, the world's changing dramatically and. And I think we really, 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 at local politics level, need to ask some hard questions, whether that's consolidation. Uh, you know, everybody's upset about property taxes in Nebraska, but yet in, in Boone County, there are three public school systems. They're all D2 schools. In fact, if you put all three D2 schools together, guess what? They're still classified as a D2 school. So why do we need three geometry teachers and three biology professors and so forth? It's because they feel, this is where we cross, they feel that if they lose their school districts, there's a loss. And that leads to the demise of the vitality of their communities. This is where I think you all and we all have a real opportunity to neutralize that sense of loss and help paint a different picture. And that's really... These are tricky, complex, integrated systems kinds of questions, Charlie. But I would say that a really neat program are these getting our students back into these communities. So kudos, thanks, and uh, just a plea to work more collaboratively across different stovepipes. Thank you. That's part of our conversation this morning. And I know we're uh, within moments of out of time, but Jeff, you have you have really looked at this with us, and. Uh, you and your organization work in as many or more communities than anybody in Nebraska. You have a comment or two along this line?
one of one of the key issues is to get a uniform mechanism across community colleges and and four-year institutions around transfer of credit. Um, Gabriel Bannock, who works in the systems office, that's one of her primary functions is to figure out how to make that happen. There's been a lot of progress in that area. We're not quite there yet, but we have arrangements now with a number of <coughs> community colleges where if they get an Associates of Arts degree, all of that transfers in into the university, and, and they basically are automatically admitted to UM. So it can be done, um, but the, there's, so there's structural barriers. We also have found in, West, in community colleges in the western part of the state, they are way far away from the gen ed requirements, general education requirements that the University of Nebraska expects to transfer in. So there, there's work to be done. But if we can get that done, now we have an opportunity to take that nursing example or take the example that we're doing in aviation, for example, or what, whatever that discipline is. And now time to degree drops dramatically if, in fact, they want to move from that two-year degree to a four-year degree. Uh, they, can, they can move into this system, not take 180 hours to be able to get an undergraduate degree, but get it at 120 or, or slightly above that. Then we're really taking the value added of our workforce, the, the human capital of the state, providing the opportunities for them to do that. If we can then take distance education and online education and add it to that mix so that they can stay in their home communities, so they can get that degree and work in their home communities and not, and not have them have to come to Lincoln or even Kearney or, or Omaha. Um, and I'll tell you, we had a conversation with, with um, uh, Regent Pillen, uh, and we're working very closely with him try and figure out how to get early childhood education workforce built because the hospital and other industries uh, uh, in northeast Nebraska are afraid if they come to UNO, they'll never come back. <laughs> and so sure. how, do, how do we provide the opportunity to provide that early childhood education through the community colleges uh, and then maybe actually deliver the, the rest of the four-year degree in Norfolk or Columbus or wherever it might be so that those individuals stay in the communities. I think all of that is possible, but I think we have to be strategic and we have to be intentional, and the University of Nebraska has some responsibility here to be able to make that work. So that, so I think that's very feasible, and we've done some work RFI, again, can work in those home communities with, with Central Community College and Northeast Community College and Western Community College um, and, and Mid Plains Community College and say, how can we help you work with the university to be able to, to, to speed up, to simplify in an efficient way? How can we help get online education into your communities uh, especially at the undergraduate level, how can we use the university uh, high school in a way that effectively gives that online support 
out where you don't have three geometry teachers. In fact, you may not have one geometry teacher or one Russian teacher or, or one physics teacher. And how do we use the university's resources to help the high schools get those students to a point? And if they go to the community college, that's great. No problem. They need post-secondary experience. That's the issue. And then if they decide a four-year institute, how do we help them do that? That, I think RFI could be a really key factor. And I think the, the issue is this, once the infrastructure gets sorted out, which may be a rate limiting step right now, in terms of broadband, width, et cetera, and I think that's where uh, advocacy comes in. You know, I think this has been said, the competition is no longer gonna be, you know, UNO, UNL, UNK. Everybody in the world is gonna be able to, to offer degrees that anybody in the world can take. And I think if we don't, take advantage of the fact that we're the Nebraska system uh, university. I think 10 years from now, you know, you, you can, you'll be able to sit in your house and take a degree literally from anybody. That's the way things are going. A lot of the big schools already have their testing MOOCs, they're, they're refining them, they're, they, they're, they're offering mini degrees right now, they're giving little doses. There's an online MOOC right now that University of Georgia Tech, which is one of the top schools in the country for engineering. Uh, they have a new uh, master's, I believe, in computing science degree that's $6,000, the whole degree. It's all online. It's exactly the same degree that's offered if you're to pay 42000 or whatever it is on campus. So I only bring that up just to say that, and they, they've scaled that. They, you know, their students are from all over the world. And I think we have a responsibility. Again, it's the whole idea of making sure that we don't think that the competition is your next community or it's the university beside you. We've got to figure out how we work together to preserve the whole. And I think that's where RFI comes into play, is by helping to identify how we can create those linkages, opportunities, where we can actually deliver content. Um, you know, we're building this whole virtual reality center at the Med Center, as you probably have heard. And that's one of the goals, is to be able to beam, you know, information right into communities and make sure that they know that we're part of that community. So if Mayo Clinic decides that they want to set up shop, they'll say, well, we don't know who you are because we're working with the Med Center. So that's really what we've got to do is make sure that every single community understands the value of the NU system. And I think, you know, RFI with, you know, the work, you know, that you guys are doing, Chalk, is a great opportunity to help make sure that that happens. I mean, I, I think it's important to note that because of the regional rural forums that we've had, we have relationships with the presidents of almost every community college in Nebraska, as well as our relationship with Greg Adams uh, and their association. Uh, just to be honest, I think Southeast Community College is the only one that we didn't work with. So uh, really, I, I go away pretty energized about uh, taking advantage of those relationships, and I appreciate you saying that. There is a place to play. To me, relationships are what it's all about, those personal relationships. Um, I had a colleague many years ago from the Czech Republic who would come here and work and go back and forth, and he'd say, Charlie, if I try to do something with your university, or, or frankly, any in the U.S., uh, routinely the response was no problem, meaning we can figure this out. He had colleagues in the Soviet Union that time, the Soviet Union, he said, you know, if I approach them as a, uh, with an idea, they'd say, no problem, meaning it's a problem. 
so we need to take advantage of that can-do spirit, no question about that. Uh, in terms of the personal relationships, there's no doubt in my mind that we would not be doing the kinds of things we are in healthcare professional preparation in Kearney if the communication originally hadn't been between Kyle Meyer and myself, to give Kyle credit as Dean of College of Allied Health Professions, if it had been someone else, if it had been slightly different circumstance, it wouldn't have come to pass. So the point is that uh, when we presented to the Appropriations Committee of the uh, Legislature, <laughs> that, <laughs> he had a fine mentor, he had that. Uh, when we were able to get some uh, state funding for this project, the majority of it was state funding in the spring of 2012, testifying before the Appropriations Committee, I spoke, others spoke, and I think maybe that helped a little bit, but the compelling story was told by the CEO of the hospital in Brown County in Ainsworth. It was told by the CEO of the uh, hospital in Harlan County, Alma, Nebraska, from South Dakota to Kansas, demonstrating what we need and why it's so important. So it's about the people and the relationships. We just, um, I mean, these guys know more about Nebraska than, than I've, um, they've forgotten more than I know at this point of the game. But I would say we need to work collaboratively on the gradient, really PK through 16 plus. We, uh, we're, we're, we're competing too much. I think the incentive models for how state funding is distributed is just crazy or for the community colleges, the local taxing authority. So again, this is, this is a complex, tricky situation, but I think we have some disincentives, Jeff, to actually moving. I would love RFI and, and the fellows in RFI who understand higher education or PK through 16, that gradient, to really think about the disincentives and maybe look at the scholarship of models around the U.S. where there are elements that maybe we, we could pick up on. So you could help by giving the legislature the politicians a little bit of an idea of alternative models. That would be very helpful. Second, I would ask RFI personally not to get too far out of your your expert, your your zone. You can't be everything to everyone. So the power that you have are connections. You create opportunities for collisions around entrepreneurship and students and value. I think those are really powerful. Some of this has to come down to us and candidly, the presidents of the community colleges and ag, you know, I think it's not even coopetition. It's just kind of people are trying to fix problems and I'm not even sure what the problems are. And uh, we're stepping on each other. So what I would love to see is a program straight out of the chute where every student, for example, that is at a four-year school, I don't care if it's Peru or Shadron or UNL, once you accomplish two years worth of college, I would love to see an associate's degree be granted to a student from one of our community colleges. So we increase degree completion immediately and the community colleges get the credit even if our students never stepped on foot at Northeast or all of a sudden our degree completion rate in the state of Nebraska goes to Lumina goes way towards that 60% attainment goal, gives our students that don't finish a four-year degree a safety net, and all it does is it reinforces the importance of higher education and that PK, PK-16. There are simple ideas that if we could get out of the competition mode, we, I think, actually could advance Nebraska in creative ways, and anything that RFI could do to help us on that one, let's get on with it and try some experiments, right? The worst it can be is, we, we learned something.
listen, I have violated the cardinal rule of emceeing these things and that I've run as 10 minutes over. There is no way to summarize all that we have covered with these guys today. I would like you to join me in a round of thanks for uh, some pretty busy, important folks uh, joining us. And I would just like to say to the four of you, if you'd be willing, we'd like to have you back. And uh, we'll start on the next list of questions. Well, this, this has been very valuable for us. Thank you. What I really wanted to do was give you a chance to ask them questions, but yeah. So anyway, thank you very, very much. We, we really appreciate your participating with us. <clears throat> Oh yeah, good idea. <laughs>